If you're joining us today, we're one week in. Last week, uh, Jim talked on walking your talk, a talk on holiness. One week into a sermon series called Spring Training. There you have it. And so today, we're going to read through the entire book of Titus. Now, before you run out of here, it's only three chapters. It's only 46 verses. So it shouldn't take that long. It's not like I said we're going to read through mm, Jeremiah, which... uh, uh, Though Psalms has 150 chapters, Jeremiah in length is longer. So we're going to read through the entire letter of Paul to Titus, and then we're going to start a new series today called Spring Training. Pray with me and we'll read God's Word. Father, this is your Word. It is absolutely true in what it says. It affects our life. It changes those who believe in it and in you. Father, I pray as we read your Word now, uh, lives would be changed. You told Timothy not to forego the reading of Scripture because you have designed it, that Scripture does its work in the believer. And so, Lord, we want to honor that for the glory of your name and the good of our souls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can turn with me in Titus, Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, or you can follow along uh, on the screen. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must, not, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to teach, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, I urge the younger men to be self-controlled, 
Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that the one who, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is, person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zanus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Father, That is your word. That is Paul's personal letter to Titus. It was to be read to a congregation shortly after Jesus died. Within a century, congregations were listening to this very letter that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, composed for them and for us. I pray now as we take the next few weeks and go back to the basics, back to the fundamentals of the faith, I pray that you would be honored, our strength would be, our faith would be strengthened, our lives would be full of joy by what we learn here. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine you're a second baseman for the Cincinnati Red Stockings in 1870, and your manager comes in and says, pack your bags, we're going to New Orleans. And you do so, not fully understanding what he's doing, but he's the skipper, right? And you you trust him to lead you. And so you pack your bags, and the next day you get on a train in 1870, right? And you go south. And such so begins the tradition 
of spring training. Or imagine you're Troy Tulowitzki, right? And just a few months ago, you packed your bags and you flew to Scottsdale, Arizona. And you find your way to the Salt River Fields and you meet up with your teammates. It happens every year. I hope someday to take my boys, take my family. Wouldn't you like to go to spring training? It's in Arizona. It's warm. It's in February. It'd be nice. But there's where they work out the kinks. They introduce the rookies to the team. They rethink the past season. They prepare for the upcoming season. The days are long because the season is long. 122 games. And then if you make the playoff, there's more. And then they go back to the basics. Even the super talented have to do the fundamentals. I emailed a buddy of mine who used to play in the majors, uh, and he sent me an email this week, and he said they even hit off the tee. Right? They hit off the tee. You never outgrow the tee. You know, you, you get past it. I don't want the tee anymore. Well, the pros hit off the tee because they're checking their form. You never outgrow the fundamentals. They run quite a bit to get in shape. They throw. They take ground balls. They take fly balls. They think through all the situations of the game. Every situation is rehearsed. What are you going to do if there's a man on first and a man on third? What are you going to do if there's a man on second but nobody on the other two bases? What are you going to do if it's a pop-out in short field but there's a man on first and second? What are you going to do? They think through all those situations. And the challenge is that I heard, in, I, I talked to my buddy, actually he sent the email, and he said the challenge is it's very monotonous for those players who have been doing this for years because it's the same thing over and over and over again. And you do them over again, and the challenge is to stay focused and to stay faithful. It's finding majesty in the mundane. Well, last week Jim talked about walking your talk, the personal holy commitment to glorify God in everyday life. And in essence, his sermon was just taking us back to the basics. That's what pro players do every year. They go back to the basics. It's called spring training. How much more, if they do it for a game, how much more should we do it for our Christian walk? Um, They have players and coaches. We have leaders of families and churches. They pass on the fundamentals to the next generation. We have discipleship. They're preparing for their opposition. And though theirs is mostly friendly, though you do see a few scuffles in the baseball season, uh, we're preparing to face the world. And they're living for something bigger than themselves, or you would at least hope they were. It's called the game. And we too live for bigger than something else. It's called the gospel. And so over the next uh, five weeks, six weeks, we're going to look at the gospel and how it influences the fundamentals of the faith. Three chapters, 46 verses. I would highly recommend each week reading through the entire book. As you saw, it only took, it probably took less than five minutes. I was, I was supposed to hit a timer, totally forgot to do it. We could do it again. I'm just kidding. Right? It'll take five minutes. Read through the book every week and you'll get the context from where we're going. I would encourage some of you to commit lots, big chunks of this to memory. If you were going to pick out a chunk from every single chapter, I would say 1, 1 through 4, 2, 11 through 15, and 3, 3 through 8. Those are the gospel and how it affects all those other things. And so you see the gospel in chapter 1 affects leadership. The gospel at the end of chapter 2 is the foundation for discipleship, and the gospel right in the middle of chapter 3 helps uh, with how we go to the world. 
And so you can see up there on the screen, you have the gospel, the gospel in leadership, the gospel in the world, the gospel in discipleship, and the gospel in mission. It permeates the fundamentals of the faith. The way we're going to look at it on the next screen is we're going to look today at the gospel and specifically God's word. Then we're going to go a little bit out of order because it's Mother's Day. And you got to have a Mother's Day special. And there's nothing better than verses 3 through 5 to talk on Mother's Day. And then we'll get back into the gospel and leadership, gospel in the world, the gospel and discipleship part two, and then the gospel and mission. And I know we live in a visual culture. I know you're wanting a visual aid to help you see this. So I could think of nothing better than to have home plate right there for you. The top of that shows you the gospel in all three areas. And then down the sides, you have leadership into the world and you have discipleship that goes on mission. Each week, we'll come back and we'll look at home plate. We'll cross it again and to see the big picture of the book. So my encouragement to you is read the book every week. Memorize big portions of it. And every week we'll come back to this and we'll see how does the gospel affect us in daily life? How does the gospel explain the fundamentals of the faith? And so Paul begins, Titus 1, with the first four verses are just one long, poignant sentence. It is long, it is detailed, uh, but it's worth it. And it talks about Paul and his mission. It talks about God and its sovereignty. It talks about Titus in the church. Let's begin. Paul, a servant of God and of Christ Jesus. This is the only time the phrase, in its completion, servant of God, is used by Paul. Sometimes he uses uh, servant of Christ, but here it's servant of God. It's the only time he uses it, and it's to show us this is a man who is under and with authority. He's a servant of God and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He serves. He comes under the authority of God, but he's an apostle. He goes with the authority of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Why does he do this? He does this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in a hope of eternal life. Paul said in 2 Timothy uh, 2.10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. We shouldn't be as a church, you shouldn't be as a Christian, shouldn't be afraid of the term, the elect. It's a good term. It's a biblical term. It's common in the Bible. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, we see God's electing purposes. God elected to create the world. God elected to create man and woman. God elected Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He could have chosen Mortimer, right? It could have been Mortimer of Ur of the Chaldeans. And we would have had Mortimer, that we would have, the Mortimer covenant. But he didn't. He chose Abraham. Jesus Christ died for people, not possibilities. If you don't take anything else away from this sermon, just remember that. Jesus Christ died for people, not possibilities. I know my Savior died for me, not for the possibility that I might come to know him. He died for me. And so for people to say, well, doesn't that go against evangelism? No, that's a straw man argument. It's a misnomer. When we talk about election, we live with that tension that God is absolutely in control and human beings are absolutely responsible. 
And so election should bring us peace, not puzzlement. And so here are three things that I want to show you just from this half a verse that will help you with the idea of election. That Paul was an apostle. He was one sent with God's message into the world for the sake of the faith of the elect. So a good understanding of election helps your evangelism. It helps your evangelism. Because some are elect, we know that we can go share the faith and people will respond to the truth. It doesn't hinder our evangelism. It helps. And please bear with me for several illustrations from being on a trip, right? Because that's where most of this was taking place. But I was in a cab in Wimbledon coming home from the wedding reception. And I was got in a conversation with a British cabbie about God. And he said, oh, God is in everybody. Everybody is God. I said, really? That is fascinating. And I didn't try to butcher it by, you know, do it in a, in a British voice. I said, that's amazing. I said, so if God, the God inside of me tells me I shouldn't pay you your 30 pounds, which is about $50 to get home. Wow. My God tells me not to pay you. That's okay. And he goes, oh, uh, well, I guess, I mean, I guess that would be sure. You know, he's kind of caught himself because my God was telling him I didn't need to pay him his 30 pounds. And I said, no, I am going to pay you your 30 pounds. In fact, Ben and I are going to split the cost. But we're going to pay you your 30 pounds. But you have to admit that argument wouldn't fly for you. You wouldn't accept my God not paying you because there are laws of the land. I said, so that doesn't work. And in like we are getting near our stop, in like two minutes, I laid out the gospel for him, trusting God to do his work. Amen? And if that gentleman is elect, he will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can, I can share the faith in confidence that some will respond. Number one, we can, it helps us in our evangelism. Number two, it helps us in our edification. For the sake of the faith, the elect, and there, the elect's knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Not only it helps us with our evangelism, it helps us build up the body of Jesus Christ. That we can know the truth, which then makes us godly. And thirdly, there's this encouragement in the hope of eternal life. We go out and we share the faith. Those that come to know the Lord are built up in faith. And there is a hope, no matter how dark it gets, here on earth, there is a hope of eternal life, and it is not a, uh, it wouldn't be a good hope if we didn't know it's coming and it's for sure. Just like we sing today, uh, we can run as far away as we want, but if you're God's chosen child, He'll come get you. And that's comforting. Does that, do, well, so what you're saying now is because you believe in election, uh, you just punt obedience? Oh, no, I want to obey. I get to obey. I'm not using and abusing Christianity as some sort of fire insurance to live like I want. No, it encourages me as I'm built up and there's a hope. Jesus Christ is coming back. And so the oceans may be deep, but I know one day the one who created the ocean, the one who keeps me on top of the waters, I was going to challenge our kids when we were singing that song. Tell me the story. Who walked on those oceans? keeps my feet above. As long as I keep my eyes on Jesus, I will not sink. And here's a beautiful thing about this truth, this doctrinal truth that we're given right here in one half of verse number one. And starting in number two, it's given by God. 
in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, God doesn't, God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't misspell significance on a Sunday school whiteboard. I can't imagine people doing that. He never lies. Ever. He's given us 66 books, 1,189 chapters. I don't know how many verses. A lot. All of them are true. He never lies. He doesn't deceive. You can read this and you can understand the creator of the universe. And this God who never lies, he promised these things before the ages began, and at the proper time, he manifested them in his word through the preaching. God, who is free from falsehood and absolutely trustworthy, made a promise before the world began, and he did it, and he manifested it at the proper time, or literally at his time. It is his prerogative. God made a promise, and God revealed it when he wanted to. Could he have done it differently? Yes. Did he do it the way he wanted to? Absolutely. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Why did Jesus come back then at that time? Why didn't he come in 2014? I don't know. But the fullness of time had come. Christ sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. At the proper time, he manifested in his word. God, at the proper time, manifested in his word. We are absolutely dependent on him for everything. Not only our physical lives, but everything we know about him, everything we know about Jesus. It is all due to God's sheer grace. Have you ever wanted something at a certain time and it just didn't come? And you had to wait. I remember it's Christmas morning. The buildup is, is, has been done. The season is almost over. It is Christmas morning. There are presents to be opened. My father would get up before us, and had he not put the bicycle together the night before, he would have gotten up early, and I could hear him. And he said, don't come in. It is not the proper time. And I had to wait, and my brother had to wait, and we heard him in there sizzling bacon, putting coffee on. I was like, no, it's Christmas. And I think he did it just to develop a little patience in us. It's not the proper time. And we're just like, oh, what are you? And you hear this clanking around in the kitchen. And then when he said go, we could come. When it was, it was his prerogative. And that is the same with God. So it is with God. He knows better than you and I how to run the world. He does. And as the general manager of the universe, he's not left us um, with no instruction. He manifested in his word through the preaching. Number one, in his word. This is the message of redemption that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Now notice, Paul, he could have used any one of many illustrations in his own life. He could have used his Damascus Road experience here. That God manifested himself in a Damascus Road experience, but he didn't. Because not everybody's been knocked off their horse. God manifested it in his word. Because every single person in the world has an opportunity 
to get this. And if they don't, that is why we have organizations like Wycliffe who go out and they give them this. They give them God's word. Everyone, you and I, is, this is an objective standard outside of ourselves that we can go to and confirm God has spoken. And he did it through the preaching. In the Old Testament, he did it through the preaching. In the New Testament, he does it through the preaching. I just saw this article when I was on the plane and earmarked it. Protect your church in one simple step. You know what it talks about? It's not background checks, though those are good, and we do them, just so you know, your children are safe. It's preaching. Thank you for standing in the gap last week. It's preaching. Preaching expositorily, preaching persistently, preaching practically, preaching patiently, and preaching doctrinally. It's preaching. What keeps a church grounded? It is people who hear the word and then people themselves who know how to study the word and declare the word. God, who never lies, who never lies, gave us the truth in his word through the preaching. And just take a few minutes on the Word of God, taught, preached, studied, memorized, read, sung. My one application for today is this. Take God at His Word. Take Him at His Word. And I'm no um, superhero. I didn't come up with that. I just basically chopped off the I-N-G and added the E to this book, by Kevin DeYoung, Taking God at His Word. I rarely, from the pulpit, rarely mention any book that I highly recommend. I highly recommend you get that book. I'm going to start floating some around throughout the congregation. It's 110 pages, big letters, okay? It's that good. In one of those, Kevin DeYoung a good expositor of scripture, was a, a teacher of mine on the plane and on the train. I read this and I'd read it before and I'd never made the connection. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And he went on to show that in many ways, In many days, through many different means, did God speak. And today, it is through His Son. And that's often, I've kind of puzzled me, well, what does it mean He's speaking in His Son? He's meaning He's speaking in two things. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living Word, and as it's contained in His written Word. You'd never separate those two. We know about Jesus because of the written Word, and He did it in real life. And it ended with the cross. There's nothing else. Nothing else. There's nothing else for us to look forward to. It was done in the cross. The only thing we look forward to is Jesus coming back. There's no, there's no other redemption to come. It's a done deal. And two weeks ago, that's what we celebrated. Long ago, in many ways, he spoke through the prophets. Today, he is speaking in his son. And his son, in Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus, in the written word, the gospels, in the Bible, as a whole. You and I see that redemption in Jesus Christ and the revelation of God's word, they go together. They are never meant to be 
pit apart. Well, you read the Bible, I just follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus unless you read your Bible. And the Bible that you and I hold in our laps, we just view on the screen, is absolutely trustworthy. I want to just show you in summary what I learned from this book, what I want you to learn from reading the book. Number one, that the Bible is inerrant. It is without mistakes. It has no errors. It can be trusted. God's Word contains no mistakes. Well, aren't there many contradictions? Name them. Just name them for me. Oh, well, the Paul, Paul talks about uh, salvation by grace alone, and James says, faith without works is dead. Exactly. There's no contradiction there. Paul's talking about your vertical relationship with God is based solely on grace alone. And James is talking about your horizontal relationship, how you display that, that relationship with God is done through works. It is a display. It is not an earning of works. It is a display of what God's already done. They don't contradict you another. Paul and, uh, and James were friends. Even our brother Martin Luther said James is a straw epistle because he held too firmly to Paul's doctrine and he wasn't seeing rightly James' doctrine. They go together. There's no contradiction. None. Number two, it's sufficient. Oh, if I were to, if I were to do a whole series on this one topic, I would call it biblical counseling. Oh, wait, we've done that in Sunday school. It is God's word is not only inerrant, it has no mistakes, it is enough. Second Peter says everything, God's promises contain everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's not one among many options. It's not like the Bible today, Oprah tomorrow, that cool new book on heaven the next day. This is enough. I'm struggling in my workplace. Colossians 3, let's sit down and talk. I'm struggling in my marriage. Ephesians 5, let's sit down and talk. I'm struggling in my leadership of my company. Great, let's go read Nehemiah and talk. Nehemiah can help me in leadership? I should say he was a pretty good leader. What's the one thing throughout all of Nehemiah that you see? He prayed and he planned and he persevered and he had more prayer and he had more plans and he persevered. What do you do in your daily work? You better pray. And you better persevere and you better have a plan. Which, if we're talking about plans, we could take you to Proverbs. Oh, I'm struggling with my, with my kids. Ephesians 5, again, don't exasperate your children, fathers. And notice it says fathers do this. So fathers, you should be the leader of what goes on in your family. Well, I'm struggling with my neighbors. No problem. Jesus said something, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Yeah, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm struggling with my finances. That's good. We can go to Proverbs. I can give you many a verse from Proverbs with money. I'm struggling with um, depression. You know what? So did David. So did David. So did David. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? David didn't, didn't listen to himself. He preached to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation in my God. Three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, as the deer pants for flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, when, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you within turmoil within me? Martin Lloyd-Jones picked on that and picked up on that and he said it so succinctly. He said, we would do much better as a Christian church if we learned to preach to ourselves more than listen to ourselves. Because we wake up every day and there's, there's part of us that says, you can't do this or you're going to mess that. You just need to preach to yourself. No, I am a child of God. I'm saved by grace. And today I'm going to do such and such. So the Bible will answer everything. Does it tell me whether or not I should have bacon? No. I love bacon. I love it so much I put it on the outside of my Bible. But it does tell me that I should uh, be a good steward of God's body, so I enjoy bacon in small portions with butter on toast with eggs. Now you're hungry. Do you see? The Bible is without mistakes. It is enough. Don't settle. And I am saying this with, with the authority of God's word. Don't settle for, yes, the Bible's good for that, but in this issue with my marriage or with my kids or with my job, I need to go seek this counsel. You don't. You don't. And it's been written off in the church that pastors and elders can't help in these certain situations. That's not true. Because long before there were psychologists, long before there were all these uh, marriage therapists, sex therapists, there was Song of Solomon, and there were pastors who read their Bible and they walked people through the nitty-gritty of life. Well, if it's without mistakes and it's sufficient, it better be clear, it better not be confusing. Paul writes, or Peter writes at the end of his second letter, there are some things that Paul says that are just kind of confusing. And there are. But in the big picture, if you were to read this from Genesis to Revelation, my, eight, my almost 10-year-old daughter can understand the big picture. It is clear. Sure, there are some things that are, that are they're boogers to unwind. Well, that's, that's not good. They're, um, they're difficult. Thank you. They're difficult. There are difficult issues in Scripture. But it is clear on the key points of life. There's a God who created the world. Mankind has sinned against God. There's no way you can work your way to heaven. You must trust in his Savior, Jesus Christ. And that Savior is coming back. The worldview that we live by, right there, absolutely clear. It's not mysterious. It can be understood. And if it's without error, if it's sufficient and clear, guess what? It is our authority. It is final. It's not... Uh, the word, and then Chris, Jim, and I came together and we conferred as elders and we came up with a new tradition that we're going to implement. The church has not got the final authority. The word is the final authority. It has no rival. It must be obeyed. And finally, it is necessary. It's not trivial or outdated or a history book to be taken off the shelf and read once or twice. It can be applied to life. And we must read it. We must be like the Bereans, eagerly examining every day to see if the things that Paul declared were true. So I would say to you, in, in that vein, don't take anything I say um, as gospel unless you take it home and you said, you know what, he said that, there it is. If I say it and it lines up here, believe it. If I don't, don't. So if you're not into bacon, no big deal, because it's not in there. 
I mean, there were some sacrificing of pigs, but anyway. And I want to show you a little acronym to help you remember that. I scan. It's inerrant, it's sufficient, it's clear, it's authoritative, it is necessary. You scan the scriptures. And notice, not only did he give us his word, but he gave us the means by which we get the word. It's through preaching. Again, that is the one thing to keep this church and any church solid. If you were to look around, do this research on your own, any churches that were once solid and, and, and fruitful and maybe now aren't, what has changed? Chances are their greeting ministry rocks. Chances are their setup ministry phenomenal. What has changed? They do not preach the Bible. Or they preach the Bible and they use one verse as a diving board into the 52 ways that your life can be better that I dreamed up this week because I had nothing else to do. That is why we go verse by verse through Scripture. And we do it persistently. And we'll continue to do it. We do it practically. We don't just, uh, hey, do this and... We show you how to apply it to life. We do it patiently. That You preach the same thing over and over again, and God's Holy Spirit does His work, and He do, builds a church through the preaching of His Word. And we do that in our small groups. We take a small group through First and Second Timothy, and they get built around the Word. Or you take it around a topic in the Bible, and you build your life on the Scriptures. His way is through the preaching. And notice what Paul said. Paul was in constant wonder of his father. He never got over the fact that he was once in opposition to Jesus. He was knocked off his horse by Jesus, and he was used by Jesus. 1 Timothy, the first couple verses there in that chapter let you know that. But God's way was a privilege for Paul, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It is a privileged responsibility. Every believer on the planet has a privileged responsibility to steward what they learn and give it to the next generation. It's a privileged responsibility. Paul was entrusted. He was the, the message of preaching, which we, he was entrusted. Yesterday, I took my kids and another family's little girl on a bike ride. And for said hour, I was entrusted with that little girl. And so we go down to the creek. You can guarantee I wasn't too worried about Luke because he'd been to the creek before. Wasn't too concerned about Lauren. She'd been to the creek before. Lawson, you know. But this little girl, she wasn't going to get out of my eyesight. Because I was entrusted. By the command of God our Savior, it is a responsibility. Paul was entrusted and commanded. Well, there's, well is, it, is, it, is it a privilege or is it a responsibility? Yes. Let's not separate those two. It is a privilege to be a believer. It is a responsibility to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul didn't let his wonder uh, just stop with him. He had a work to do to pass it on to the next generation. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in common faith. That quite possibly Paul was the one who led Titus to the Lord. That's why he calls him my true child in a common faith. The faith of Titus, here's what blows me away. The faith of, of Reed is the same faith as that I have. It's the same faith that Brian has. But here's the bigger picture. Titus's faith is the same thing as our faith. It's a common faith. The once for all, said Jude, handed down faith. That blows me away. 
you mean to tell me, and if you saw a picture last week, I was standing in a pulpit uh, about 10 feet. I love that. We should build that into this gym, Jim. It'd be Jim, G-Y-M, Jim, J-I-M. Right up here on the left, just looking down. You know why it was so high? It was not because to exalt the pastor, but what was on the front of that was the Word of God. And there were people who heard Titus in that church, and they believed just like we believe. That's what's blowing me away. It's a common faith. It's fascinating. A faith of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's grace. It's not works. I didn't earn anything. I don't deserve anything. I have a friend that often tells me, if we're talking about something, he said, man, you deserved it with a big old grin on his face. Because his point is, you didn't deserve it. You got it by grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who's written in God's word alone. And then what what comes from that is, is peace. Peace. A lot to do over the next two weeks. There's a peace. God's in control. Oh, there's a lot going on. There's these different things going on. Huh? Peace. God is in control. How do you counsel this couple? How do you counsel that person? How, how do you how do you help this couple who's getting married? How do you shepherd your wife? How do you? Uh, it's okay. God's in control. He's left me His word. Peace. And notice it, it comes from God the Father. And so we'll end the series on Titus, and then we'll have one day, June 15th. It's a good day, don't you think? It's a good day to get married. But it's Father's Day, and we're before we go get married, we're going to talk about fathers. It comes, that peace and that grace and peace comes from God the Father. Two things, you know, they, what are your highlights of the trip? Two things bookended my trip that bring a tear to my eye. Because, because in a slight, very slight sense, you get a, you get a, you get a, just a itty bitty picture of maybe. And see how I'm qualifying this? Maybe because I don't want, I haven't. Just maybe the emotion God has for His children. I'm leaving, and Luke r- couldn't even say goodbye. He runs up and buries his head in her side because he was, he was sad. Daddy was. And then when I get home, my daughter grabbed me. She probably could have done like a power snatch with that grip she had on me. And you just think, wow, I'm a father. Maybe, just maybe. Just, I don't know, barely the emotion that God feels towards every person in here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you get your grace. That's where you get your peace. In Christ Jesus, our Savior. He's our older brother. He is the Savior. He is the one uh, to whom we live our lives. So you have Titus. Who is Titus? Titus, if you're reading through the Bible in you, you already encountered him. He was in Galatia. He was not even led astray by the Galatians. In Corinth, he was assigned by Paul. And now Paul's telling him, I want you to go to Crete. I want you to go to this island community. Sound familiar? A, a church in a resort community, a community plagued with false teaching and loose living. Has anything changed? And Titus was to come with the truth of God's word. To take God at his word. So here's a summary. Verse 1, there you see God's people. 
we are a people with a purpose. We may not be the writers of Scripture, but we're the carriers of it, and that's no less important. Amen? We're talking about spring training. Pitchers, who do pitchers have to have? Catchers. Imagine playing baseball without a catcher. No less important. We are a people with a purpose. Paul was a servant and he was an apostle. We are servants and we are, we are not big A apostles, but we are ones who are sent with the message of a God who never lies. And that leads me to two. God who never lies. He is eternal. Before time began, he designed it. Well, how can you live in that world, Judd, that God designed everything? Are you just a robot? Do I look like a robot? No, I'm not a robot. But I believe that God's in sovereign control of everything. He knew that I was going to wear this shirt today before I even chose it. But I chose it. Why did I choose it? I went with the pants. I don't know. But God's in control. He's eternal and he's trustworthy. Even when his timing is not mine. And thirdly, God's word. He gives his message contained in Scripture so all of us can read it, all of us can memorize it, all of us can study it. It's not just experience. I've never, had a, I've never in my life had a Damascus Road experience. Some of you may be closer to that. I've never had a Damascus Road experience. And you know what? I'm no lesser of a Christian because I haven't had it. I have his word, and so do you. And his means is the preaching and the teaching. And that's why we have Sunday school where we teach our kids. We, don't, we do do um, some you know, felt boards, but we have chosen curriculum and any curriculum we choose, we do it because it's going to teach our kids the word of God and they're going to go home and they have scriptures to memorize. They can talk about it with their parents, but he chooses to take his word taught by people to the next generation. Take God at his word. You don't need to take a four-year-old boy at his word. Take God at his word. And finally, notice, it is Paul working for and under and with God, taking his word to a church, God's church. It's a common salvation. That's what's amazing when you stand in a church that's thousands, not thousands, almost a thousand years old. Or you go to Oxford and you see, I studied in Oxford, by the way. I prepared for this sermon in Oxford. That's pretty cool. You can tell my pastor, he, he prepared a sermon in Oxford. No big deal. That's funny. Come on, laugh. But the buildings are just centuries old. It's amazing. You're just like, like I see, well, that house has been here for 50 years. This one's been here for 750 years. And people have been studying God's word and proclaiming God's word. And the church has gathered around God's word for centuries. Yes, we are all saved individually, but we are saved into a community. We like to call it family. They're our team if we're using the spring trade. That's our team. This is the team. This is Eagle Bobby. We're on the same team. We need a mascot. We're on the same team. We're on the same mission. We have the same uh, playbook. Take God out of his word and take it to the world. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for Titus. Thank you for Paul's willingness to pin it to a young pastor and a young congregation who needed to know the fundamentals of the faith. 
pray as we open up this letter over the next few weeks that we would go back to the basics. We would learn here. The men would learn what it means to be leaders. The women would learn what it means to be disciple makers. Young people would learn what it means to receive the word from the previous generation. That we would understand the world around us. And that we would go with sound doctrine and good works to affect and influence the world for your glory and their good. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.